It is an amazing day to be here. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors on staff. That crazy guy screaming was Aswan. He's one of the pastors on staff. Uh, and Aswan was actually in my apartment eight years and one day ago. On September 18th, 2013, uh, uh, a bunch of people came together to dream and to pray about what a church would look like in Harlem. And we would eventually launch uh, a year later on September 14th, 2014, September 19th, 2014. And one of the things that I think about, and I've been going down memory lane this past week, you know, very grateful for the big G in the sky, uh, Google, which allows me <laughs> to go back to my Gmail and look at the emails that I've written. And uh, I was reading this week the first email that I, that I wrote to what would be a small group that would meet in my apartment right down the block from here, right on 121st Street. If you have a good arm, you can hit it with a rock. And I remember that night, uh, I remember sending the email and just being so nervous and thinking like, what are the chances that this thing actually works? And being so anxious that I barely even slept that, uh, that night, the night before. I woke up at like 5.30 in the morning thinking like, you know, am I crazy for leaving my job to help start a church? Probably. <laughs> um, will this thing work? I don't know. But would it be worth it if it does? Absolutely. Uh, when I was reading through the email that I wrote this week, uh, I started the email then the way I start many emails now. The email basically reads as, what's up, family? I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't fully understand what I meant by that phrase, by calling us family. And really, that's truly what we set out to do. Not to just have amazing worship services with incredibly talented singers and musicians or engaging worship services where you hear a good sermon, but that we would become family in Christ. One of the most profound things about the New Testament is that it teaches that we are not just people who receive spiritual enlightenment in our own separate silos, but that what it means to come to faith in Christ is to be brought into relationship with God, not just as our creator, but as our father. And then in turn, being in proximity to those who are around us. If you t understand the New Testament as they write, uh, one of the things that's interesting about if you read an English version of the New Testament is that you'll read so many different passages of scripture where you'll see the word you, and technically that's not incorrect, it's not heresy, but a better translation is y'all. The New Testament does not say you are this, it says y'all are this. It's always written to a plural, it's, it's written to a people. Jesus Christ came not to make a new individual, but to make a new people, to make us a new family, with a new mission, with a new goal, with a new love for each other. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, a man named Paul, an author of a lot of New Testament writings, as he's talking about what Christ has done and what Christ seeks to do in your lives, here's what he says to this church. Much like a church, um, our church is today, this church in Ephesus, he writes, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, and listen to this, and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, Christ, the whole building being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you all, y'all, 
are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, no other religion will ever dare to make the claim that you and I can be members of the household of the Creator. Here's what Paul is saying, and here's what all of the New Testament comes alongside him in saying. Christianity through Christ is that your, our Creator can become your Father. It's interesting if you study history and the great inventions of America and the great inventions in the world, certainly the car is up there. And, you know, Henry, T, uh, Henry Ford gets uh, a lot of credit for being the creator of our modern um, automobiles and the Model T car. Um, but even though he is the creator of automobiles or the Model T Ford, he did not have that car at his dinner table every single night. The Model T Ford was not waking him up at 4 o'clock in the morning to get them something to drink. The Model T Ford was not welcomed back after a difficult day. It was created, but it wasn't being raised. What Paul is saying and what Scripture is coming alongside him and saying is that you and I are members of God's household. He is our father and we are siblings together. Another man named John, uh, he wrote this in one of his epistles. And if you read the book of 1 John, you'll see John having a lot of like back and forth conversation with himself. And when he gets to chapter 3, you can almost sense him getting hype. And he says, oh, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. That we should be called God's children, not just God's creation, as precious as that may be, but God's children, united not just to him but to each other. And that's what we are. Uh, there's a couple of dangers in our way to actually realizing what God has for us as a Renaissance community and also as a member of the big C church, not just this one lowercase c church, is that you know, our society is so riddled with something called individualism. Now, individualism, it's not all bad, but essentially what individualism is, it's prioritizing your desires over all else. And this is a real ethic in our day that whatever it is that's true to you, do it. It doesn't matter who would stand in your way. And it's difficult to embrace being a part of a family, uh, a, a biological family or certainly a spiritual family, this new reality that we have, if you are being shaped and formed and discipled by individualism. Now, in my household, there's a couple of things that exist in large quantities, Cheez-Its and Disney Plus. <laughs> Disney Plus is one of the very few things, I'll admit this, I, I won't even want to risk it with someone else's login. Like, I need my own <laughs> subscription to Disney Plus because my kids are on Disney Plus, and it is for that half an hour or an hour we give them of that TV time, it is sanity. They can log in. But one, one of the things that's pretty fascinating about the way that Disney is even forming our kids is really impacted by this concept of individualism. Now, if you were to rewind to the 90s, the good old days, as I would like to call it, um, <laughs> if you looked at the way that Disney would present a movie, Aladdin, Lion King, The Little Mermaid, there was always a threat that was external to the family that sought to destroy them. In Lion King, it was Uncle Star, um, in, uh, I didn't watch The Little Mermaid, but I know it's an external uh, <laughs> enemy. It's always something outside of the household. But Disney has changed, y'all. Now, the enemy is not this big bad person that's trying to destroy you from the outside. The enemy to you realizing what you're supposed to be are your parents. Now, for those of you who don't have small kids, uh, you have to take my word for it. But if you were to watch movies like Luca, Moana, and Frozen, 
The parents are the number one obstacle in this child's life from them being fully them. Now, Disney doesn't do it on purpose, and we still let our kids watch it, mainly because I, I need that hour of time <laughs> for Twitter. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, it actually does allow us to have good conversations with our kids about, well, what does it look like for mommy and daddy to be the people that you don't trust? Do you think mommy and daddy have your best interest at heart? Now, what Disney is forming our kids with is to take a bait that they need to prioritize their desires over everything and everyone else. And a lot of us as, a, as adults have, bit that, have taken that bait. That's the way we engage with church. That's the way we engage with our job. That's the way we engage with our spouses. That's the way we engage with our significant others. We prioritize our desires over everything and everyone else. You will not realize the kingdom of God that way. It's a, it's a phony copy. It sells us so short of what God wants us to have. Now, individualism is certainly one big uh, uh, obstacle that we have to be able to fully realize what God has for us to call us, to call us into a family. The other aspect of it is we just don't understand what it means to truly be in relationship with people. There's an author, a sociologist by the name of uh, uh, Scott Peck, and he talks about the four stages of community. Now, if you're brand new to Renaissance or if you've been around for a very long time, here's what we talk about whenever we get ready to get in DNA groups or get ready to be in more proximity with people. Once you move past the Sunday morning last in, first out, and you seek to actually engage with Renaissance in a real way, you're going to go through these four stages. The first stage is pseudo-community. Now, pseudo-community is the first response of a group seeking to form community and connection and here's what pseudo-community is marked, with, marked by. The members attempt to have an instant connection by being nice with one another and avoiding disagreement at all costs. What this means is people really don't open up. People are not really honest. People are not really vulnerable because they just want to go somewhere with good vibes. One of the things that um, is so interesting is that instead of like conflict resolution, um, pseudo-connection is all about conflict avoidance, which Peck says is about the appearance of community without actually having real harmony and real community. The goal here is to maintain positive emotions instead of creating a space for honesty and wrestling with difficult truth. Now, one of the things about pseudo-community that's so interesting is that this is what so many people have been programmed to want and to desire. Years ago, when I ran the community groups at Renaissance, um, I'll never forget, I was talking to someone and they were saying, hey, pastor, you know, I did community group last night, and it was cool, but I think I need a new group. And I was like, oh, like, what happened? And I'm expecting it to be some, like, big bombshell. And they were like, oh, actually, you know, we just got there, and we, a couple people disagreed. And then we got into this super deep, super heavy conversation, and it was just mad awkward. And, yo, this, this ain't a good fit for me. And I said, listen, just stay in this group. And in eight weeks, if you don't absolutely love it, next semester I'll move you to another uh, community group. Now, this group, by far that year, was the best, most tight-knit group out of every group we had, hands down, because they immediately descended into the second stage of real community. They got rid of the pseudo-community, and they got into something which sounds bad called chaos. <laughs> chaos is when you realize that people are different than you. Chaos is when you realize that you actually don't agree with everything the other person is saying. 
Chaos is when someone gets on your nerves and you have to actually come to grips with this reality. Now, a lot of people in search of pseudo-community avoid this uh, process altogether and they retreat at the first sign of chaos, but this is the healthiest thing that you, need, you and I need in forming real and lasting community. Think about this right now. Who in your life right now, someone that you would say, yo, this is my right or die. Who in your life that is like this that you haven't gone through some stuff with? That y'all haven't hit, bumped heads a bunch of times? There has to be chaos. There has to be conflict because real connection is on the other side of conflict. And there's no other way around that. So as you are engaging in Renaissance more, please know that this is a very healthy and necessary part of the process. So stage two is chaos. Stage three, this sounds even worse, is emptiness. This not, yeah, again, these are not uh, really affirming titles of, uh, of what's <laughs> happening. But emptiness is not that you feel empty and that you're miserable. Emptiness is when you finally empty your expectations of what you wanted that other person to be. And now you can seek to love them for who they are instead of who you wanted them to be. Now, after you have moved through pseudo-community where you're just trying to keep up an appearance and everybody's just trying to stay on the surface, and you've gotten to some chaos where you, got, you went through some hard stuff together, had some difficult conversations, pressed on some things a little bit, had to forgive somebody that you didn't want to forgive, uh, going through emptiness, lowering your expectations, uh, uh, getting rid of your expectations on what you wanted them to be, then we can have true, biblical, gospel community with people because connection is on the other side of conflict and struggle. Now, here, here's what's fascinating. Paul says in verse 22, in him you are be also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Now, when we think about buildings, uh, we can think about modern day construction with these prefabricated bricks that fit nicely and perfectly on top, of another, on top of each other. And you can watch someone putting up a building pretty quickly and uh, stacking them on top of each other. But the bricks in Paul's days, these were like big giant rocks that were not, when they were being built together, you would take a rock and you would put it on and then you would shave it down. And then you put another rock on top of it, try to fit it and shave it down some more. When Paul is saying that you are being built together as a dwelling, in the spirit, for God's dwelling in the spirit. Essentially what he's saying is God is stacking us on top of each other and he's shaving down some of the immaturity in your life of people pleasing by putting you in a conflict. He's shaving down some of your inability and unwillingness to forgive other people by putting you in situations where, people, where you actually have to forgive someone. He's putting in you, he's shaving down some of the immaturities in our life in so many different ways and he does that not just in private personal enlightenment but he does this in the forming and the process of building us together. The growth that we really seek and really want truly happens together with other people. Now, this scripture and so many others were written to individuals, they were written to, not to individuals, but to a group, a new family where we belong. We belong together. We are being built together as a family for God's dwelling in the spirit. You know what that means for us? That means that we can actually have real growth. Being a family offers us real growth, not just knowledge. One of the challenges in modern Christianity and American Christianity is that we equate knowledge with growth, but never in all of society have we had access to more information and been more ignorant at the same time. We can Google anything, but it doesn't mean we're actually growing closer to God or to uh, each other. 
a Christian author by the name of C.S. Lewis talks about this concept of how we actually grow better as disciples of Jesus Christ in concert with other people. Uh, C.S. Lewis is an author, and he had two other author friends, one named Charles and another named Ronald. And he talked about, regrettably, his friend Charles passed away. And C.S. Lewis, as he was writing, and he's a profound author, he talks about it. He says, because Charles died, there was a piece of Ronald that I was never able to see again. Because Charles would bring stuff out of Ronald that I was never able to see by myself. Here's what he says. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I can't see anyone fully. I need other people and other eyes to see them. Now that, my friend was, now that my friend Charles was dead, I'll never again see that part of my other friend Ronald that Charles brought out. Uh, my first year of law school in North Carolina, I moved in with my, with my brother and my cousin, uh, who's from North Carolina. Everybody, every black person got at least one cousin named Buck. <laughs> so I moved in with my brother and my cousin Buck. And um, my brother and I grew up very close. Uh, we're two and a half years apart, two school years apart. And um, we, yeah, we grew up together in the same room. We were in bunk beds until I was like 20 years old. <laughs> uh, and uh, I thought that I knew my brother, right? We did everything together. We traveled together. We did all these different things together. But my first year of law school, when we moved in with my cousin, I saw pieces of Jared that I was never able to see when it was just me and him. That I learned more about who Jared was when Buck entered into the picture. If that is true of a person, how much truer is that of God? How can you expect to know, to grow more and more and to understand who God is by yourself? God is far more complex than any one of us. And there are pieces of who God is that you will be unable to see by yourself. Years ago, they wrote an article called What About the Famine? And they talked about the story of the prodigal son. A group of theologians got a group of people together uh, from all over the world, and they told them to write from memory the story of the prodigal son. If you're new to church, the story of the prodigal son uh, is a story where uh, a father has two sons, and one son asks for his share of the inheritance. He goes to a far distant country, spends all his money on lotto tickets, um, and then is dead broke and then ends up coming home begging for mercy and for a seat back at his father's table. Now, when they asked the Americans to recount the story, none of the Americans included this fact about that there was a famine. Because as Americans, we don't really understand what a famine is. A famine, for me, is when I go to Popeye's and, they don't have, and there's a 10-minute wait on a two-piece spicy. That is, that is a famine. Like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do right now. But if you grew up in Russia where you had one potato every other day, you knew exactly what a famine was. And as the Russians were talking about the story of the prodigal son, they went on and on and on and on about the famine. Now, geographically, there are parts of that story that just ring true for us, that we don't, we're unable to understand the fullness of that story of the prodigal son unless we are sitting next to somebody who lived through a famine. Same thing is true for any number, any number of other issues. You want to grow closer to God, right? So you're here for one of two reasons. You want to get the swag after service, <laughs> or you want to grow closer to God, or both, hopefully. You'll never grow closer to God by yourself. There is a limit. There is a ceiling. Now, this is not to say that God doesn't call us to personal, private disciplines. Right now, personally, uh, privately, I'm trying to memorize Romans 8. 
It's a spiritual practice that I'm going through. It's very helpful. God does call us to private disciplines, yes. But there is a limit to where your private disciplines will take you. But this is why we have DNA groups here at Renaissance. Um, DNA groups are groups of four to seven men or four to seven women that meet together for a period of eight to 10 weeks. And the registrations are open for them now. And every single DNA group, there is a recorded teaching that you go through for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then the group has a conversation and we highlight together what the scripture is saying to all of us. And we go through it together. Now, some of my guys from my DNA group are in the room right now, and it has been one of the best things that we've done at Renaissance. Now, this semester, we're having, they're online again because uh, the way the Delta Sigma Theta variant is set up, <laughs> we don't wanna, <laughs> we don't wanna rush to in-person things too quickly. However, and Deltas, please don't hurt me after this, which is when this is done. <laughs> <laughs> the way that we want to be safe and continue and consider all things. So we're going to have um, New York City-based DNA groups where you're still going to meet online and they meet Tuesday mornings, or they meet Sundays, Tuesday mornings, Tuesday evenings, Wednesday mornings, or Wednesday evenings, a bunch of different time slots. And for the New York City-based groups, we would encourage you as you feel comfortable to get together in person once or twice throughout the, uh, the course. And for those of you who are not in New York City, uh, your group will be purely vir virtual this uh, semester, and here's what, it, here's what it is. We make time for the things that are important to us. Very few people have no time. There are some people, for whatever reason, a season of life, they just don't have the time. Others of us don't make the time, and I, as, as a pastor here, I would strongly encourage you to make sure that you register for those. The registration ends next Sunday, and every single year, someone emails me the day after, like, yo, pastor, <laughs> pastor, my bad, man, you know, like, I was at my cousin's house and we forgot. I'm like, you had internet because you were tweeting. Um, <laughs> the link has gone out in the Friday email and it's also on our website, renaissancenyc.com DNA. Please go up and sign up for that ASAP. Um, it really does create a huge uh, obstacle for us logistically when people register late. So please do us that favor and register for that so we can grow together as a family. So that the, the invisible parts of God to us right now will be made more visible and so that we can grow closer to God. Amen? Uh, another thing that um, family provides us with, it's, it's real resilience. It's one thing to go through life alone. It's another thing to go through it with other people. When I think back to my life and the, the most difficult moments, what got me through was not personal strength. I had to borrow strength from other people. In your life, in your walk with God, in your walk with Christ, there will be periods where you feel like giving up, throwing the towel in, and you need other people to give you their strength in that moment. There's a scripture in Ecclesiastes, it's a famous book of wisdom in the Bible, and here's what it says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either one of them falls, his or her companion, companion can lift them up. But check this out. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can a, one, person keep, one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers uh, one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Now, a lot of times I've heard that scripture read at a wedding, and certainly it does apply to the, a marital relationship. But this scripture about a three-cord strand is not easily broken, that has nothing to do with marriage. That's all about people coming together in real, true community, living together as a family, being interdependent 
on one another because pity the one who falls without another to lift him or her up. Uh, when I think about the story of Renaissance in the last seven years, it hasn't been all roses. There's been a lot of obstacles. And I can think of a couple of instances, too many to name right now, where people in this room right now, if it weren't for them giving me their strength in those, in those moments, we would not be here right now. Uh, I remember one day, it was a, it was a super stressful time in the, in the church plant, and there was this conflict happening, and I just didn't know what the next step forward was. And someone else sitting next to me, uh, not physically, but in relationships, someone in our core team spoke up and spoke up for me. And in a moment where I doubted my leadership, in a moment where I doubted whether or not I was doing the right thing, in a moment where I doubted whether or not we, we could even make it, I had to borrow the resilience and the strength from someone else because I just didn't have it. There were other times where it was just very discouraging moments. And I'll never forget, I was sitting, sitting in my apartment on 121st Street, very discouraged, and uh, my wife said, hey, let's, let's just pray. We sat down to pray, and at the moment we sat down to pray, there was the longest motorcycle <laughs> parade <laughs> for like six minutes. <laughs> ATVs going by, everything, it was, it, was, it was crazy. And I sat there and almost kind of had to start laughing at how ridiculous it was. <laughs> and that moment would be repeated and has been repeated for over and over and over again, there were just times and moments where I just needed someone to grab me by the hand and pray for me because I didn't have it. You know, I, I'll, I'll look up because I don't want to look anybody. <clears throat> we are here, not because of Jordan. We are here because there's a group of people and a group of people continuing to pour into the lives of other people, people who have poured into my life in real ways people who continue to pour into my life in real ways, people who pour into your lives in real ways. What a tragedy it would be if in our moments of struggle, we were alone. So what the biblical vision for, for life and flourishing is that it offers us a real resiliency. Uh, and not just that, it offers us a real, a real care for others, to really truly care about other people. Uh, there's a book called Blind Spot. Uh, written by an author, her name is Mazarin Banaji, and she tells a story about two Yale doctors and how we will go out of our way to do something with someone that we can identify with, and that there's a limit of what you will do with some, for somebody that you don't identify with. It's a story about a woman named Dr. Kaplan. She was a, a, a professor of English at Yale University, and she was uh, doing some dishes, dropped a bowl, and cut her hand with a pretty big cut. She looked at it immediately and knew that she would need not just stitches, but probably a surgery to repair her hand. She raced to the affiliated Yale hospital, and she went with her boyfriend. And as soon as they got to the hospital, they were talking to the, 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 the doctor, and, she, and her boyfriend says, listen, man, she loves to quilt. Can you please make sure that you get like a top shelf surgeon so that you know, she would have the full usage of her hand? The doctor you know, assured her, um, him, don't worry about it. We have, you know, we have a good team of people who are gonna do the operation. As she was sitting in the waiting room, another doctor looked over and saw her and said, oh, Dr. Kaplan. Immediately, the other doctor who was treating her says, oh, are you a, a doctor? She says, yes, I'm a professor at Yale. Immediately, he canceled the plans of having the, the random resident do her stitches, 
and called in the foremost hand specialist in all of Connecticut to do her surgery. Now, what changed about the situation? She didn't change. She was still a person. He didn't become more empathetic overnight in general. He can now identify with who she was. He saw himself in her. Now these were two Yale doctors in proximity with one another, and he was now willing to go above and beyond to help her. I wonder if the reason we're not able to go above and beyond with anybody here is because we just don't truly see ourselves as a family, that we see ourselves siloed as individuals, and we don't see the familial bond that Christ has come, Christ has bled to make us not just a new person, but a new people. If you think about the things you'll do for your family. Uh, years ago, uh, one of my cousins came up uh, to New York from Texas, and this is one of my cousins that my family who's in the front row know about. He grew up in Yonkers and then moved to Texas. And I don't know what's in the water in Texas, but he's he instantly turned into the countryest person on the planet. <laughs> and when I'm talking about country, I'm talking about nine gold rings, gold teeth, and a jerry curl country. I'm like, bro, we, you grew up in Wyo. How did we get from that to here? And he was an interesting fella. I'll just leave it at that. And he got into to some issues. And he's not somebody that we grew up with in, in my family. We knew that he actually was family, but he's not somebody we have a whole lot of memories with. But when he got into some issues, my family came to his aid for no other reason than he's family. Not because we have similarities, we do not. <laughs> if I had hair, I would not have a jerry curl, I can promise you that. Not because we were expecting something in return, we weren't but just because we are family. My hope and my prayer is that we would absorb what God wants us to be, not just a new person, but a new family, and that would give us real care for other people, that would make us go above and beyond our individualized comfort zones for that moment. Uh, and the last thing it gives us is a real mission, uh, a real mission together. Uh, there's a story told about a bookstore in a closed country uh, closed countries are countries in which the government censors religion, specifically Christianity. Some of these countries forbid having church. Some of them forbid certain types of books or whatever. Uh, but there's one specific country, the specific one wasn't given um, in the name. Uh, they were allowed to have bookstores, and the story is told about two pastors who were walking around a bookstore. And as they were walking around, one pastor says to another one, hey, what don't you see in this bookstore? And the pastor says, well, I see books on discipleship, I see books on worship, I see books on the Trinity and theology. He says, well, keep looking. What, what's missing? Missing was any mention of the church. What that government knew was, as long as you remained an individual, you were never a threat. So you can read all the books you want about theology. You can read all the books you want about Christology. You can have all these private disciplines, but as long as you remain an individual, you can't really do anything. The hope what we hope to recover here at Renaissance is that our walks with God are certainly personal, but they're not individual. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also, y'all are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Heavenly Father, would you give us 
your spirit to renew us, not just individually, but corporately. Father, may we be about your business, seeking your fame, your glory in Harlem and New York City. God, may we be people that make a difference, not just in attending, but in being. May we be your people together. And Father, we're so grateful for your faithfulness to us, for knitting us together, for forming us and shaping us and reforming us and reshaping us in your image. May in this next year, Lord, we be more of what you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.